This is the John Oakley Show podcast. The story of the Neville Lake family, you might recall, uh, in their minivan that was T-boned by Marco Muzzo. Four of the members, the three young kids and the granddad, lost their lives in that. And uh, Mr. Muzzo pled guilty, went away. Uh, it was a 10-year sentence. And now it seems like he's applying for parole come uh, the spring in March. He's eligible again. And uh, this is where the Neville Lakes and... Uh, there were other people who are weighing in as well, uh, suggesting that this is an outrage and justice not being seen to be done. When it comes to matters of justice in the legal system, we defer to Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners, joining the Oakley Show this afternoon. Joe, how you doing? I'm great, John. How are you? Very good. Uh, you know, on this matter, and I guess we talked recently about this in another context. It was the Forsillo, uh full yeah. parole granted. He's now at a halfway house in Hamilton for killing Sammy Yatim. You know, he got six and a half years, but uh, it's a matter of 21 months and out. I I guess I want you to reiterate what you told me at the time, because in this case, I mean, a lot of people are saying this doesn't seem to be justice when you take four lives uh, through your own uh, irresponsible actions, drinking and driving. But what point or purpose would we be served by seeing the full 10 being served uh, versus getting out early? You know, it's a very good point, and it's very difficult for people to understand because the emotions are so high with a case like this. But the reality is, on a 10-year sentence, that is the mark about what this was appropriately worth for a sentence. And an individual like Mr. Muzzo in jail is posing a very little risk, both in jail and out. So upon an assessment now for his second application for parole, um, he, if he gets parole, then he will be in the community, but he'll still be serving a sentence. So as we discussed before, the parole board um, oversees his release, and there's a parole officer in place which will oversee his release until the expiration of what's called the warrant of committal or until the complete sentence. But we're dealing with an individual, again, who's at little to no risk to the community so long as it's not driving and drinking. Um, And the other thing we have to look at is the overall sentence in and of itself, the 10 years, is nothing sufficient to bring back the the loss to this family and the tragedy. So we have to divorce from this equation or this analysis the sentence and then what happens upon release. And I think it's also important that when somebody's released to the community that there is a sufficient period of monitoring to ensure that they're following the terms of release, they're undertaking continued programming, and they continue to pose a limited risk so that we have a measure of success in the community so that we know going forward beyond the sentence, once it's completed, they will not pose a risk in the future. You know, it's being suggested as well by somebody who lost uh, a loved one to a drunk driver, I guess uh, showing uh, some kind of uh, being simpatico with the Neville Lake statement that... uh, She believes all inmate rehabilitation should occur after the prisoner has served their entire sentence rather than a third or two-thirds of it. Is there any merit to that point of view? Well, I mean, I guess it's the way we look at our justice system. And, you know, um, it starts with what the judge determines as the appropriate jail sentence. And we cannot divorce from the system that rehabilitation, but, you know, the sentence itself represents denunciation. This was a horrible thing a horrible act. There was no real intent to commit murder, so that's why we have to differentiate it. But once in the jail system, the punishment is meted out, but there has to be focus on 
uh, responsibility and rehabilitation because eventually this person will be reintegrated to the community. If we wait till the expiration of 10 years to implement programs, assess risk, and start to involve the person in rehabilitative programming, we've missed the mark because by that time, there can be all sorts of other negative issues that's been impacted on the individual while in jail, and it may be much worse for the safety of the community, and that really is what's paramount. We need to ensure that when people are reintegrated into community, they are safe and not going to pose continued risk. And we have overall a very, very robust system in Canada where rates of recidivism and ongoing risk of people who are reintegrating into the community is very, very low. And I think it's a good system. It's not perfect, but it's what we have. And I think overall, it's serving the purpose. Again, with Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert on this matter, Marco Muzzo, uh, it looks to be imminent that he'll be applying for parole. This is the individual whose irresponsibility led to the death of four individuals with the Neville Lake family, you might recall, uh, back four years ago. Now, in this article I'm reading here, Joe Wambach, uh, the chair of the Canadian Crime Victim Foundation, and this goes back, Joe, I guess, founded this thing about 35 years ago. He lost his own son, tragically, in a horrific crime. Uh, He says this whole Muzzo case illustrates what's wrong with the system. Uh, He says, I would hope he'd be understanding the depths of the desperation he's created while behind bars. Is that looking to... uh, exact some kind of a a punishment, some kind of a, I don't know, psychic uh, gratification that the person is suffering uh, or is truly remorseful? What is he implying here? Do you know? You know, I'm not sure. But, you know, losing a child and the family, the Neville Lake family, losing their children and the grandfather, I mean, it's a horror that we can't imagine. It, It is beyond imaginable to most of us. And so I understand the sentiment of anybody who writes that. The reality is we need to step back when looking at the criminal justice system and take an objective view. Why is Canada such a a successful country in many respects as compared to the United States? We have a lot of civility here and a social structure and a focus on justice that also meets out some civility. And that is important for us overall for protection in the community. But it doesn't satisfy those individuals where family members have been lost, particularly children, which is incredibly tragic. But we can't meet out a system where somebody for an impaired causing death gets a life sentence. That's just not going to be appropriate. There has to be balance in the system, and and we have to maintain that balance because we're not just dealing with one case at a time. We're looking at the system overall and how to balance risk management and safety of the public going forward versus how we have justice as well on individual cases. It's a very difficult balance, but I really do think we're doing a very good job in Canada. For people in the community, uh, apart from the people who have been directly impacted and victimized here, but others who wanted to weigh in, there's something called community statements. And uh, Jennifer Neville Lake is asking people to sign on to these community statements to, I guess, address that to the parole board. Uh, You in favor of such? Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it's very important for people who are not just the direct uh, relatives of the people who have passed away, um, but, you know, maybe a larger sense of the community who need to have a voice. It's a parole hearing. It's not a sentencing hearing. And I think it's important for them to have a voice. I don't have any opposition to that. And that can be taken into consideration by the parole board. And I'm sure they will think very carefully about it. 
But overall, again, we need to think about what our system is, how it operates, and overall how our safety in this country and in Toronto is, is generally very, very good, and we do a good job of integration and monitoring of individuals in the community. Again, he's on parole. If he gets it, let's not presuppose that he's going to get it, but if he does, he will be on parole. He'll be reporting. He'll have to fulfill requirements on that order, and he's not going to be off of this sentence until the warrant expires at the 10-year mark. I think some people are thrown by the fact that, you know, the reports from inside the Beaver Creek Correctional yeah. Facility, it's a minimum security place. Uh, they're playing mini golf, uh, conjugal visits, and so on and so forth. They might want to, you know, strip him entirely of his humanity and uh, then rebuild or rehabilitate from there. I mean, can you understand that that sticks in some people's craws? I, I get that. I 100% get that. But again, you know, I say this. It's not all, uh, you know, a piece of cake in jail, whether it's Beaver Creek or not. You're in with other inmates. It is not the safest of environments. There are other requirements that they have if they get recreation time. Even in the hardest maximum secure facilities, they get yard time, they get to play basketball, weightlift, and do other things. And again, you judge a society about how we uh, manage our inmates and those who've been convicted of offenses, and we need civility in the system. When you have reporting that he's playing mini golf and, and bocce ball and other things, I get how that upsets everybody. But that is in no way a complete reflection of what jail is like, even in Beaver Creek. It's not a walk in the park. It just isn't. Joe, let me ask you finally, since you cited Toronto Community Safety, uh, the mayor had uh, some kind of a gathering with regional mayors like Patrick Brown from uh, up there in Brampton, Bonnie Crombie, Mississauga, and so on and so forth, as well as the police chiefs. And uh, they're talking about trying to curb the gun and gang violence. It's an ongoing issue that continues to fester. But Sylvia Jones was also there, the Solicitor General in the province, and she talked about the federal government having to change the criminal code as it pertains to gun-related crimes and bail. We've talked about it briefly in the past, but what do you think she has in mind? Well, I I think the concern that's been expressed is individuals who've been charged with gun-related offenses and then re-offend or breach a release order are getting bail far too often. I actually don't see that in my practice. I think maybe if somebody breaches once, they get a bail, but beyond that, they're detained. I think that's a bit of a fallacy in my opinion. And I think the better way to look at this is it's not about also, I just want to say this, it's not about those who are lawful owners of guns because the majority of guns are imported or brought in from other jurisdictions. I think what we have to look at, and I may be, you know, uh, saying something that the police services don't want to hear, but I believe boots on the streets are very important for deterrence and apprehension. Because if we look at the budget that police have had over the last decade and the retooling and redistribution of, of power of, in, of the police, I mean, you know, just sort of the number of police officers on the street and how we have them involved with the community, I think that's a significant impact. The more presence we have and the more opportunity they have to engage with the community and be involved and be out there and doing their job, the better chance we have at detection, apprehension, and prevention of crimes rather than just simply looking at bail. And our system right now is also uh, incredibly stressed with within the jails and the costs are insurmountable, and the jails are are overloaded at the moment. And so we need to look at a way of not even dealing with it after the fact. We need apprehension before something happens, and I'm seeing shrinking budgets for police services, and I'm seeing less support for them, less infrastructure, 
that makes it harder for our police officers to do their jobs. And so, I, and I'm speaking as a defense lawyer, I see this. And you'll see a drop in charges as a result of what's happened over the last five to ten years. We you know, need a greater investment in policing, period. You know, it's interesting well, when you talk about, you know, the police boots on the ground and so on and so forth. Michael Bloomberg, uh, who looks to be running for president on the Democratic ticket, actually implemented stop and frisk in New York City and uh, just leading in the aftermath of Rudy Giuliani cleaning up a lot of the mess. One of the safest large cities on the planet and certainly in America on a per capita basis. And now he's apologizing for that, though, because it's seen as being somewhat, uh, I guess, discriminatory in its implementation. But stop and frisk seemed to work in New York City. Yeah, I know. And but we you know, the, the carding issue that we had in, in Toronto, it needs there needs to be balance. There needs to be a careful approach taken as to who we stop and why. We can't have profiling. But that doesn't mean we can't have police on the streets. It doesn't mean that we can't have them engaging with the community. And they know what's going on and they need the intelligence. And when you start reducing the size of our police services, when you start reducing their budgets, when you're amalgamating divisions, you're not helping safety in the community. And so I may not agree with Mr. McCormick on a number of issues, but I do agree that we need greater investment in policing. They need the infrastructure necessary. And it's not necessarily about stop and frisk. I'm not in favor of that. But it's about being there and having the intelligence and engaging in a meaningful, helpful and, you know, congenial way with the community. You can achieve the same result without having something which is too um, maybe biased and too... you know, offensive, but we can achieve achieve the same thing with a proper investment in policing. And we don't have that. That is a real issue here. And we, we're working with tight budgets, but we need proper investment in policing, period. You've been meaningful, helpful, and congenial. And I appreciate your time as always, Joseph. <laughs> I tried my best. You did a good job. Uh, Thank you, John. A plus for Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.